Hi, my name is Kat. My name is Nastya, and this is Curious Sisters, a show where we talk about all things Slavic. We both grew up in Russia, so we decided to dedicate this first season to an opportunity where we can reminisce, look at our old experiences from a new perspective, and share them with you guys. We are so glad that you're here, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Curious Sisters. My name is Kat. My name is Nastia. Welcome. How are you today, Kat? I'm just fantastic. It's nice out. Finally getting some vitamin D. My favorite type of weather. I think I may have gotten some mild sunburn on my arms. But I love this type of weather. How are you doing? I am good. Not much sun for me today, but... I'm hopefully gonna go and fix this after we record and go on a run although it is pretty cloudy here anyway I was thinking about the previous episodes that we recorded and my warm-up question is kind of related to one of them and it is okay what is the weirdest food combination that you like that seems weird to other people I was gonna say I'm glad there is a caveat at the end that seems weird to other people because I'm like it, I may not even think it's weird so how would I know that it's weird unless somebody tells me it's weird <laughs> exactly I have to I have to say probably the um, f- um, fi- gosh I got, I'm, I'm drawing a blank um this herring salad the fish in the fur coat the fancy fish so yes. when you put when you put the fish <laughs> the layer of the salty fish then some mashed potatoes or shredded potatoes then boiled and shredded carrots then beets and then top it off with mayo yum um even even russians like yourself make fun of me for loving it so i'd say <laughs> that's probably that's probably a good indication that it's weird that's the first okay. thing that comes to mind. But how often do you really eat that salad? How often? Yes. I I mean, often enough for people to notice that, ew, Kat is eating the <laughs> fur, furry, furry fish again. <laughs> like, a couple times a year at least, I think. Okay. I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to think good. if there's a something else out there other than that um well, what about you Do, what what are the weird combinations that you like maybe if you share yours I'll, I'll think of something else for mine well for me the only reason i know that it may seem weird is because james tells me every time that i eat this it's a uh, watermelon with feta cheese I kind of like to cut up watermelon in little cubes and just like put some crumbles of feta cheese on top. I just like the combination of sweet and salty. I think that's what it is. And it's been my favorite way to eat watermelon for the last year. And apparently James finds it very weird. 
See, I, I was going to say, I like that too, watermelon with feta cheese. A lot of it is very subjective, like what you think is weird and what you don't think is weird. Like there is a, this, I think I first tried it in Italy, the melon with prosciutto. It's kind of similar. It's salty with sweet. I think that's the combination that I like. But like, for instance, so, okay, I drink um, kefir, okay? And Larry thinks it's weird. But then there is salty kefir, which comes from um, Iran. It's like, it's Turkish, I think, salty yogurt drink. I love it. And he always like says, ew, it's so gross when I drink it. But then Larry eats cottage cheese with some salt and pepper. And I always say, ew, it's weird. But then I thought about it, like, why, why is that weird? Because I drink salty <laughs> yogurt and he eats salty cottage cheese. It's like all of it is very, very subjective. Well, yeah, I guess, I mean, both of those are kind of like milk based and I don't, I don't think it's weird. But again, like you said, it's very subjective. See, I think you're a liar. You think it's weird because last time when I asked you about Akroshka, the Russian cold soup, which one you'd prefer, the kvass version or kefir, you said kvass because you're like, it's weird, milky soup. What is that? <laughs> so see, it's very, very uh, person specific, I think. It's also like whatever you grew up with, like all the tastes that I think some of it is comes goes all the way back to your childhood, maybe. Yes, I agree. And actually, I tried the melon with prosciutto at your house for the first time. And it just mm -hmm. wasn't the same for me. I still prefer watermelon. I guess I just like watermelon better than melon anyway. So, But I think that's the only thing I can think of that is objectively weird to some people. I'm also thinking I used to, when I was a kid, I used to eat those little sour apples and put a little dab of salt on them. And I hmm. tried to do this here and Larry's like, what are you doing? Why are you salting your apples? <laughs> so see, like a lot of my weird, weird food feedback I get from Larry. Basically, anytime he says, ew, what is this? I'm like, well, I guess this is weird combination. Because otherwise, I don't think anything of it. Well, there you go. Yeah, I don't know. I like the... I think it's just like the combination of different kind of tastes as distinct. Sour and salty or like I said, sweet and salty. I think there's something to it. All right. Well, yeah, exactly. But I've been eating watermelon with feta cheese for a while now. And I agree. That's It's a really good summer snack. I love it. Now I just want some watermelon already. Okay, gotta go get some watermelon and feta cheese after this. <laughs> ah, well, what's our topic for today? All right, our topic for today and the Russian word of the day, here comes the Russian word of the day of the episode, is dacha. So I figured I wanted to talk a little bit about the mysterious, infamous dacha. So dacha mm. is often translated into English as summer residence or cottage, but the best translation is simply transliteration to English, dacha. 
This Agreed. is because the dacha is truly a cultural artifact specific to Russia with no direct counterpart in the West. So there are similar things in other countries and other cultures, but not quite like in Russia. So I figured you and I can dive in into what dacha is and what experiences we had with it growing up. It's somewhere where we spent a lot of time. Somewhere where I remember at some point referring to is you guys are using this me as a child child labor. This is child labor. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be growing all these potatoes and cucumbers. It will make more sense once we talk more about this. <laughs> all right, I'm excited. A little bit of history first, how it all began. Do you know anything about the origination of the word dacha? No, I do not. I did not either. I actually, to be honest, didn't even think about it till I started researching this subject. So the word dacha originated in the 17th century from the verb davat, meaning to give, in reference to plots of land distributed by the Tsar. At the beginning of the 18th century, during the period of Peter the Great, dachas became popular as summer holiday retreats. The nobility used their dachas for social and cultural gatherings, including masquerade balls and fireworks displays. Not quite experience that I had growing up. No masquerades, no fireworks. <laughs> no, so, no dancing. But basically, a dacha, dacha is something that was given, I guess, by a tsar to his or her subordinates, I guess you would call them. That makes sense. And I didn't think it went back that far. I was thinking it was more of a like a USSR thing when everyone everything was belonged to the government and then the government would gift you an apartment and then a dacha but apparently dates ba- back to what 17th century it's crazy yes so you're right we'll get into the USSR time but by that time it was an idea that already existed that was just taken transformed and by the time it was transformed in USSR, it looked a lot different again. No masquerades. But that's mm. where it all started. It started way, way before USSR. And just in general, throughout the whole history of like having dachas, dealing with dachas, a lot of it changed. Even in like today's dachas look a lot different than they did, for instance, like in the 90s. But again, we'll talk about it in a little bit. So by I- the end of the 19th century... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I do have a question. Um, So you said that it was kind of given by Peter the Great. Was it more of like privileged people or is it just everyone? How? What was the criteria to to get it from Peter the Great, I'm guessing, and the government? Yes, it was more like privileged people, um, whatever you call them, people of the court. Okay. Which, by the way, I recently started watching that series you recommended the great yes huzzah which reminds me huzzah (laughs) oh my goodness that was driving me absolutely insane larry was like what is huzzah why do i not know this word i'm like this is most definitely not a russian word (laughs) so i had to look it up they must have said huzzah just in the first episode maybe like 50 times but yeah, this whole like researching that Peter the Great instituted this made made me think of this uh, series. So of course, at that time, it was something that that um, the Tsar would give to his. I don't know the other words other than subordinates. They were not his subordinates, but they were like people of court, people that were close to the Tsar family. 
something that's mm-hmm. a favor like okay you did a good job or like generals okay you want war for me here's some dacha for you something like that not like you okay. would give it to pe- peasants and poor people yeah so that's what i assumed but just wanted to clarify <laughs> yep so by the end of the 19th century a house in the country was one of the necessary possessions of the rich as well as the middle class Russian poets and playwrights, including Alexander Pushkin and Anton Chekhov, mentioned duchess in their works. Summer homes in beautifully adorned areas became a place to be for many Russian artists. Many types of goods were specially manufactured for dacha use, for instance, for things such as ladies' accessories, fans, and dacha hats, apparently, to furniture mm. items and even toilets. I'm not sure what kind of special toilets were made for duchess, but there you have it. <laughs> Interesting. At the beginning of the 20th century, Maxim Gorky published a play entitled Summer Folk, which in Russian is Dachniki, people who, le- who live at those daches. The author and political activist, who later became a leading socialist writer, critically portrayed dacha dwellers and their guests. He wanted to show that these educated folk knew nothing about the needs and troubles of ordinary people. Thirteen years after the work was published, the 1917 revolution deprived most owners of their duchess, some of which were turned into the holiday homes for workers. So this is where the first major transformation, I guess, takes place for the purpose of duchess. Hmm. I mean, he wasn't wrong criticizing all those people. I agree. He had something going on there. So this is, I think, what you were talking about. It's called 0.06 of an acre or dashes for everyone. Many foreigners can help wondering why Muscovites, and not only Muscovites, but really people everywhere in Russia, spend so much time in huge traffic jams on Friday and Saturday, Sunday evenings from April to November <laughs> and in the south of Russia from March to December. The answer is simple. Residents want to get out of the city right after work to spend as much time as possible at their duchess. For many generations, these small summer homes have been a multifunctional phenomenon. Some people grow vegetables here to sell. Others grow the food that they actually live on. There are also people who spend their holidays at their duchess. This way of leisure was popular in Soviet times and is making a comeback today with the global financial crisis cutting into many people's savings. So how did this nationwide passion start? In the middle of the 1950s, as the country healed from the devastation and hunger caused by World War II, people began to think about small plots of land in the country. For some, it was not just a weekend getaway. A dacha with a small plot of land let people save their tiny incomes. Here they could plant their own vegetables. They stored potatoes and cellars, pickled cucumbers and made jams out of apples and pears in order to have some food reserves to last through the cold Mm -hmm. Russian winter. I think it's important to mention here that by that time, the majority of the Soviet population lived in the cities in the apartment buildings rather than in the house with a plot of land. People at the time basically were city dwellers. Dacha became kind of an escape from Mm -hmm. that. Because I feel like every time I try to explain dacha to somebody who especially lives in suburbia it's kind of hard for people to understand that like well you already have a piece of land why do you need another one but a lot of people didn't a lot of people lived in these multi-stories apartment buildings where you really don't have anywhere to go to be outside no plot of land nowhere to plant the garden 
But then thinking back and like growing up in Kazakhstan, when we lived in the suburbia type of thing, we still had a plot of land to go from the plot of land that we lived on. So we had like an extra plot of land where we grew potatoes and all kind of things like that. Do you remember? Do you remember going to Dacha growing up in Kazakhstan? You were tiny. You were like yes. five. <laughs> I still remember that. And I don't remember how big our garden was at the house. But if I remember correctly, it wasn't that big. And the Dacha we used to go to was more of like mass production like i remember we had so many peaches one season that we we didn't know what to do with all of them <laughs> and of course mom and dad and grandparents would be like well we cannot waste these we got to do something <laughs> so we just got to make think, all kind of jams got to make yeah. compote got to eat it got to make a peach pie <laughs> we were probably sick of peaches at some point i think you're right i think at some point we would get so the that plot was huge and we would get so much stuff from it that you would have to like give it away to the neighbors like hey you want a bucket of peaches or you want a bucket of tomatoes <laughs> i mean i think that was also just a the way of living back then like i remember this one guy walking with his cart in the morning and just screaming whatever he had in the cart like got fresh milk watermelons whatever <laughs> whatever else he had corn on the cob uh, corn on the cob yes that was <laughs> i think that was my favorite but yeah i feel like that was a way of living where he would just do that walk on the road pretty much and just sell to the people that came out of the homes and i think a lot of people like even later on as we were growing up in russia like I remember going to college and like all these grandmas that goes to their that, that go to their dachas and have too much, they will just like sit at a bus stop and sell some things. Here's my berries, here's yep. my herbs, whatever. So you could go to a grandma at a bus stop and buy something. And buy some um, produce for your salad. Yes. Probably seems wild that it's not regulated or anything like that. But yeah, I feel like they try to regulate it. But at least when I was still living in Russia, it wasn't that heavily regulated. Okay, back to how people ended up with these dachas. The state played a big part in the process. There were many regulations at the local level. The biggest issue was the size of the allotment. In many regions, plots did not exceed 0.06 hectares. In Russian, it's 600 so this figure was thoroughly calculated by the bureaucrats. A plot this size was too small for most people to live on permanently. Authorities needed to keep workers in the big cities and were not interested in restoration of private farming on a wider scale. Which I never thought about this, that this was actually all carefully planned. Concession of the 0.06 of a hectare was necessarily because the country could not provide its people with enough food. As a result, many Dutch settlements sprang up with small houses standing right next to each other. So there was actually some logic to the size of the plot. Yeah, I feel like I've always heard that number six and I never knew why and where that came from, but now it makes sense. And kind of going back to your original question, how did the Tsar decide who to give it to? So how did the government decide to give it to basically in the Soviet times it was like everybody could get you can get on the list and get this 
piece of land because during the Soviet times it's whatever government's supposed to provide to you. So a lot of people ended up with having these plots given to them at no cost. Because remember, there was no private property in the Soviet Union. Yes. So a typical plot of land was surrounded by berry trees and shrubs. There was a small house, in many cases with no conveniences at all, and a hut for storing garden tools. Around the house, there were rows of plants and vegetables. Main crops were potatoes, tomatoes, and cucumbers. However, the owner's fantasies about what to plant knew no boundaries. A row of strawberries became a must for many. Strawberries usually ripen faster than everything else. In the south, beans and even melons were grown, while in Siberia, many Dutchess had sakura, which is Japanese cherries. At the beginning of the 1960s, the number of fruit trees that could be planted was heavily regulated by the rules of the Dutchess settlement. The aim of this measure was to make the area visually pleasing. Later, all these quotas were lifted. So at some point, nobody cared. You can grow whatever you like. Yeah, I would say it's most of them are not visually pleasing anymore. Exactly. I, I was surprised that at some point, I guess, that turns out there were regulations. But since it was so early in the 60s, by the time I got to experience that show, it was like, whatever, put anywhere, anywhere, anything, anywhere you want, plant anything you like. Good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the same actually was true for the size of the plot. If you wanted a bigger plot, you could just simply buy your neighbor's land or find another plot somewhere else. So speaking of potatoes and strawberries, I remember this is, I think, why I used to proclaim the use of child labor. I remember (laughs) digging fields and fields, what at least seemed to me like fields and fields of dirt, turning it over with a shovel instead of like we didn't have a tractor to plow anything we had the kids we had us and like all my cousins who would have to shovel all this dirt to plant potatoes and then the same for strawberries and then you would have to pick the stupid potato bugs off of the potato leaves (laughs) those were gross because otherwise the, the bugs will eat the potatoes And then you had to pick all the strawberries. Like we would have literally buckets of strawberries. And at at some point I remember thinking like, like you said, who needs this many buckets of strawberries and (laughs) potatoes and peaches? And I'm like, this is not even fun. I guess at some point I thought that this was supposed to be fun activity. But I remember during my childhood, none of it was really fun. Well, to be fair, I think our grandparents and parents did make use of all of those things like they would make jam and things like that so like it never went to waste I don't think but yeah it was oh, it's no. a lot of it's a lot of work to get all that done oh no absolutely nothing went to waste I'm just venting about how much <laughs> I hated how much I hated <laughs> digging all this dirt and picking the potato bugs and then picking all the strawberries and I was like, I just want to play. I don't want to do this. Did mom and dad ever give you allowance for that? Or was it more like you have to contribute to the family? Yeah, you get the allowance. You're allowed to eat it when they cook it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. That's I would just say I don't. I do not want to eat potatoes. Yeah, I don't remember receiving any monetary compensation for this. I, I'm sure it, it, I'm exaggerating just a little bit for fun of it, but yeah, I remember some days it was like daunting. Like, when are we gonna be done picking this strawberries? And it felt like it was never-ending field of strawberries. <laughs> Tasted good though. I can't complain because. I feel like by the time we moved to Russia, we just had this little piece of land, so it wasn't that much. But I still, some of the tasks were still daunting. Like you have to pick the weeds everywhere, and it was just like you do that for half a day, and it's boring. Exactly. Yep. And and I just think like it was just me being a kid. Like I want to be a kid. I want to go do some fun and silly things, not dig the stupid potatoes <laughs> and they remove the stupid bugs <laughs> <laughs> stupid bugs all right back to our potatoes in the 1980s due to the shortage of goods in the stores farming in dutchess became a massive phenomenon and i was born in the 80s how lucky <laughs> this is i think where it took huge pace for, for some it was more necessity than pleasure as modern farming tools were not readily available. What did I just say? No tractors, all manual labor. But still others took their dacha as a hobby. They took pride in inventing something unique for their flowers and vegetables, such as greenhouses or unique water spraying devices. Still others tried to think of ways to fertilize the ground, not just with manure, but other additives. Many unnecessary items from city apartments could easily be turned into useful gadgets for the dacha. For example, and I remember this one. If you had too many empty Coca-Cola bottles, the big plastic ones, you could cut them in half and use the bottom part to protect young plants from cold spring nights. How about Mm. that? I don't remember that. Interesting. The harvest was a special pride for many people. Some sold their produce, like you mentioned, some babushkas would sell their berries and dills and onions <laughs> while others gave it away to their neighbors and friends and i remember we did this a lot it was common to share the seeds of rare plants with others real fans think about their dacha all year long in winter they plant tomato i'm thinking papa they play, plant tomato cucumber pepper and eggplant seeds in small pots that they keep on the window sills of their apartments and at the beginning of May, they replant them at their dachas. Yes, lots of tomatoes. I remember that even throughout, I'll say like throughout college, they still did that. Thankfully, they didn't grow any potatoes. I know that's a lot of work, but tomatoes did start early. Yeah, I feel like um, it's kind of hard to probably grow potatoes in Siberia too. I think it may have something to do with like the land gets too wet, not hot enough. Mm-hmm. Well, Makes plus sense. you'll need a lot of it. Yes, for sure. So nowadays, many Dutch lovers choose to live on their plots of land. They built good houses with all the ne- necessary facilities, including heating and electrical systems. Having a banya, a small bathhouse at your dacha, is not a luxury anymore. And at the beginning of the 1990s, um, this is when the next transformation of dachas happened, and some people related to some Russians becoming 
extremely rich all of a sudden. We're not going to get into details how this happened, but so these new rich Russians started building basically fortresses out of their duchess. And mm-hmm. some of them even started keeping like exotic animals there, like iguanas and crocodiles. And in the middle of the 1990s, many residents of big cities reinstated the 19th century concept of the dacha as a place for recreation and not for gardening. This created an opportunity for people in villages to rent their dachas to well-off city dwellers. And apparently it's a, still a thing to do. You can just rent someone's dacha for a weekend, for a holiday, for a party, if you don't have your own. Yes, I think that's a big business these days. Which I didn't know about. I didn't even think about this, but yeah, there you go. Have a dacha, rent it out. Dachas also played a very important role in the lives of the leaders of the USSR and the Russian Federation. So, for instance, Vladimir Lenin used his Gorky residence, which is about 20 miles southeast of Moscow, to write works about the political and economic future of the country. His last words and thoughts were never put into reality, because he died in his enormous dacha in January 1924. Joseph Stalin's favorite Moscow dacha was called Bližnya, which is Russian for the closest. It was located on the western outskirts of the capital. Here, many important meetings and ceremonial banquets took place. In 1941, after Germany attacked the Soviet Union, an exact copy of this dacha was built thousands of miles away in the city of Kuybyshev, which is now Samara. The government was to be evacuated here in case of Moscow's surrender to the enemy. Stalin also had dachas on the Black Sea and in his native Georgia. So he loved his dacha so much that he wanted a replica of it just in case. Apparently. Are we sure there was just one or two? <laughs> How many are there? Nobody really knows. These are the ones that public knows about. Mm, okay. He probably had way more than that. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. So Nikita Khrushchev spent his last days in the position of the general secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR at his dacha in Pitsunda on the Black Sea, now the Republic of Abkhazia, right up until the moment he was stripped of his duties in October 1964. His successor, Leonid Brezhnev, used different dachas for different purposes. In his huge Black Sea dacha in the Crimean Peninsula, He gave a hospitable welcome to his foreign guests, leaders of Eastern European countries and top Communist Party's officials from all over the world. But if he felt like hunting, he invited the country's leadership to his forest residence in Zavidova, 100 miles northeast of Moscow. Again, these are the ones that we know about. Good for them, having all these dachas. I wonder how much time they all spent there versus working in the city. It sounds like a lot, a lot of um, important decisions were made in those dachas, which this one is coming up. So in 1991, hardline Communist Party members decided to strip Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev of his powers while he was vacationing at his Crimean dacha. He was trying to rest before signing of the new Union Treaty with the USSR. Gorbachev mm. later returned to Moscow with the supporters of the new Russian president, Boris Yeltsin. These events led to the dissolution of the USSR. So important important things are happening at Dutchess. It seems like they spend a lot of time there. It's almost like it's... I feel like for these leaders, it's not so much 
obviously a place to plant your tomatoes <laughs> it's a place it's like your second home basically it's a place where you sit in a hot tub and make important decisions while you're in that hot tub yeah the former president of the russian federation Dmitry medvedev has three official dachas i like how the source specifies it one in zavidova one in nova agarova 10 miles west of moscow and at the summer retreat of Bachara Vruche in Sochi. Most new state dachas are constructed out of brick and concrete. The plots have plenty of greenery and places to relax. Pools, baths, fitness rooms, maybe a hot tub, who knows. I don't think I would call these dachas. These are homes. Well, that's what I said. They're basically like the second homes. Yeah, third, fourth homes. So you see, they're all facilities for meetings, press conferences, state visits, and many important decisions have been made during these talks in the open air. So one of the famous visitors to Dmitry Medvedev's dacha is U.S. President Barack Obama. Huh, interesting. I wonder if that's the one with the video that I saw on YouTube <laughs> where... They're sitting outside, relaxing, having some tea. And uh, there's that samovar. Did we talk about samovar? The, the Russian tea-making pot. And there's a boot <laughs> on top of it. And Larry was like, why is there a boot on top of the <laughs> tea contraption? And, and I always think, like, is this a clean boot? Was Obama thinking, like, are they... Are they putting sweaty boots on the tea, uh, on the tea kettle? I don't know. We have to find this video. I just find it hilarious. I've never seen this video and I can't wait. What? I'll share it with you. <laughs> Please. Well, first I'll have to find it and see how much of it I made up in my head. But I'm pretty sure there was some of it with the boot on it. And um, Obama was supposed to drink that booty tea. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about some of our at some point yes i can't believe we, we didn't yet so there you go one of the topics <laughs> for the next episode so throughout russian history duchess were also recognition items kind of similar to the tsar times given as awards to prominent writers poets musicians composers scientists top-ranking generals and the like they symbolize the person's high status. In most cases, services and maintenance, sometimes even meals, were provided by the state. Granting duchess was also a good form of control. As soon as the person fell out of favor, his or her dacha was the first item to be taken away. Not the worst thing, I guess. But it's kind of a bummer. Well, it is kind of a bummer. I have a lot of questions with the whole... <laughs> granting duchess to like i don't know who's paying for this whose taxpayers money going towards this that's what i would like to know i assume the government paid for it but yeah the people paid for it the people paid for it so yeah while it's a good control tool to keep somebody in line like i said i have a lot of questions like so the citizens paying for it and is this really a good thing to be controlled by that you're making decisions based on whether your dacha will be taken away yeah just something to think about 
So by the end of the 1990s, most people had the opportunity to privatize their duchess if they wished. So after the dissolution of USSR, private property is now allowed and you can privatize your uh, plot of land. Those in high places did their best to keep their summer homes. In most cases, they negotiated a lower price with officials. Some researchers say that for many Russians, the dacha is a way of returning to paradise lost, a source of temporary harmony away from the hustle and bustle of the big city. And today, dachas are something of a blend when they're 1800s and Soviet era definitions. While they retain aspects of usefulness, and independence and most dachas still contain small farms dachas have increased in both size and luxury so nowadays mega dachas exist they are by no means the norm but they're becoming more popular according to the moscow times in 2019 it is estimated that nearly 60 million russians own dachas almost half the entire population most contemporary dachas are owned by middle and upper class Russians and they contain modern amenities such as electricity and indoor plumbing. People go to their dachas to escape the city on weekends and to spend holidays in the summer. Additionally, most dachas are located near a lake or river so owners can enjoy activities like swimming and fishing. Yes. So it's like a getaway and house. Yes. Exactly, and many adult Russians have fond memories of summer days spent in their family dacha. Memories of eating home-cooked meals with vegetables grown in the garden, swimming in the lake with siblings, and sharing stories by a slow-burning fire. I have to admit, I did like swimming in the pool when we used to go to dacha in Kazakhstan. That was the, I guess that was my allowance. That was the reward for picking <laughs> strawberries and uh, planting all the potatoes. Swimming is green water. <laughs> I remember it well, was, I don't, whatever they used for the, the chemical that you used for the water made it so bright. Yes, and it was not always properly maintained and cleaned, but let's leave it to the history. <laughs> it was still fun. <laughs> you made it this far, so you're good. I'm good. I'm 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 alright for the most part. <laughs> So um, there's the brief history of dachas for for you guys. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing. And I didn't know a lot of the things, the history of dachas, but I definitely enjoyed, like you said, even though like with mom and dad, we would go to work for the most part. It would still be nice like at the end of the day to make a fresh salad out of your veggies and set the table there and and eat some dinner before heading back to the apartment. So that's definitely yes. some kind of a sentimental value. Yes, exactly. I agree. And then, I don't know if you had that with your friends, but with my girlfriends in high school, that's how we would spend most of the holidays, really. One of my best friends, Inessa, her parents had a, a house on the river, and their dacha was like a home, which had all the amenities, like water electricity and it was right on the river so that was a lot of fun to go to in the summer we would swim there and then in the winter when the river freezes over we would go down the hill kind of like what's the word i'm looking for sledding like sliding down the hill like yeah or kind of like snow tubing i guess uh, we would do that and just like 
ride snowmobiles on the river. So it was a lot of fun. We had at that dacha. I was going to say, it sounds pretty fancy. No, I didn't have such experiences. I'm a little jelly. <laughs> it sounds like fun. Yes, it was a lot of fun. I would say in the last years of high school, we would go in the summer. Then we would go for like major holidays. We would go a lot because her parents were so chill. And they would be like, sure, bring all of your girlfriends, whatever. So the whole house would be full of people, family and friends. That that's awesome yeah just don't break anything pick up after yourselves come on over everybody yeah. pretty that much sounds cool yeah yeah but i think her grandma would still like grow things in in the summer she would grow some veggies and some salad it's not like they had a huge piece of land but there was enough to grow some things yeah that's cool well i'm glad you got to experience some cool the cool dacha experiences other than just growing things <laughs> <laughs> probably the memories i will cherish forever yes i think you're right part of it is kind of just creating those memories and like i said even though i was a little bit exaggerating and making it sound like it was all horrible at the end of the day it, it is something that i will never forget and we spent we had good times like I remember hanging out with my cousins a lot and just ultimately being kids, creating family memories. That's what yeah, it's all about. I think the, the one, the bigger one that you were talking about, like the whole family would go there and we had a big family back then, I feel like. It would be our uncles with their families and friends and I don't know, a lot of people. That's what I remember, just a lot of people being there. Yes. And all working together and hanging out and all the fun stuff yes so what is our interesting fact of the episode um i'm curious to see if you know this one because it's about a town in pennsylvania um and the reason i looked into this is because james got this new board game uh, it's called horrified and it is about essentially fighting these creatures that supposedly exist like some of them there's like a bigfoot banshee of badlands so there are a bunch of them those things um it's a fun game it's pretty easy okay and on the back of the board of the of the game uh like of the setup the board itself they had a map of united states and they had some locations kind of like drawn out and pointed to like and written down and one of them was Centralia, Pennsylvania. Have you heard of that town? No. Or I guess it's a borough. I don't, I don't think so. So Centralia is a borough and near ghost town in Columbia County, Pennsylvania. What happened in this town is um, the population declined. I mean, it originally it was like 2,500 in the beginning of the 20th century. But then in 1980, it was around 1,000. But it declined to five residents in 2017. What happened? So there is a coal mine fire that apparently has been burning beneath the borough since 1962. And it's still burning. So it's like a town on fire. Oh, I think I heard about this. I just didn't... I couldn't remember the name of it. Yes, now that you mentioned it, this kind of sounds familiar but go ahead there you go 
Yeah, so um, a lot of, well, all of the people were kind of evacuated and recommended to leave, but I think they, the people that remained there just didn't want to go. So there's only five of them now. I don't know, well, as of 2017, so who knows, maybe less right. now. But I thought that was cool. I've never, well, not cool, obviously, for the people that had to leave, but I'd never heard of such a thing happening. And uh, when I was talking to James about it, he said that it probably could have been prevented when it just started, but it wasn't caught early enough, so it kind of just spread. And at this point, it would cost more to to stop it um, than just to kind of have everyone move out, essentially. Yeah, Maeve um, has a word or two to say about that. Yeah, I think I think he's right. I remember hearing something about it that yeah, it got to the point that I don't remember exactly how it started, but I feel like he's right. It got to the point that it's so bad now that they can't basically put it out. Right, Maeve? Now she's happy. Oh, now you microphone her. shy. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't I didn't know and I guess I was surprised because I used to live in Pennsylvania so I know things about the state so I figured I, I probably should have known that already but here you go I just learned that last week cool well thank you I'm sure there are a lot of things even though I still live in Pennsylvania there are a lot of things that I don't know about it you can't possibly know everything about everything but thank you for sharing this with us today thank you Maeve for your input as well <laughs> and I think that's a She's wrap ready for some biscuits Go make some biscuits. Biscuit time. time. Biscuits. <laughs> and drink some tea, booty tea, out of samovar with those biscuits. Make sure you don't use the sweaty boot. <laughs> and we'll All talk right, about now. more about booty tea in later episodes. We really have to talk about it now. But thank you for joining us yes. today, and we'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye. Пока. Пока.